There is a trend in scholarship and the media to rewrite what we know about Jesus. What often results is distortion. This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist Pat Zuckerman. Today, Pat interviews a leading specialist on the New Testament and gets to the bottom of this effort to fabricate Jesus. Today, you'll be equipped to answer those who would claim that the Bible is unreliable and that the message of Jesus is lost. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and I want to invite you to go to Pat's website, evidenceandanswers.org, for resources for everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And stay tuned for a special offer at the end of today's program. Here's Pat Zuckerman with part two of his interview with Dr. Craig Evans. Yes, thanks, Kevin. Our guest again coming to join us this week again is Dr. Craig Evans, professor of New Testament and director of the graduate program at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and author of this great book you need to get, Fabricating Jesus. And Dr. Evans, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Well, when we left off last week, Dr. Evans, we were talking about the Gnostic Gospels, and you built a great case that one of the most popular Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, is written in the late 2nd century. How about the other popular Gospels, such as the Gnostic Gospels of Peter, Mary, Philip, and, and Hebrews? Are they also a later work? Well, yes, they are. Uh, a couple of those Gospels you mentioned are Gnostic, and that would be the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. Now, there, there's not a great deal of dispute. Uh, not too many people argue that the Gospels of Mary or Philip are first century. I don't know of anyone that does that. They would argue that they're probably middle of the second century. So there's not much dispute there. However, still some think they may, uh, in, you know, preserve clues that date back earlier. Uh, but I find that very, very doubtful. The Gospel of Peter is not Gnostic. It's an interesting one. Now, I realize some think, well, maybe it is mildly Gnostic, maybe it's Docetic. I'm not too sure. But here's the debate there. The Gospel of Peter has a talking cross in it. Now, you know, it has such a wild account of the resurrection. There are guards present watching the tomb. There are uh, priestly elders, Jewish elders and priests who are sleeping out in the cemetery. I mean, this is unbelievable. Nobody would do this. Whoever wrote this did not understand Jewish customs very well. Then the stone rolls back, two angels that are extraordinarily tall go inside, bring out Jesus, who's even taller. Their heads reach the clouds. And the cross comes out of the tomb. And then the heavenly voice says, have you preached to those who sleep, that is, to those who have died? And Jesus doesn't answer, the cross does. The cross says yes. Well, this is so strange, because there are third and fourth century traditions that talk about a cross going with Jesus wherever he goes, including his ascent into heaven. So as soon as I, I read a document that has a mysterious cross following Jesus, going around with him, that tells me right away this must be a very, very late document. So, you know, I can't see how it dates any earlier than around 200. The other question is, we don't know it really is the Gospel of, of Peter. The Gospel of Peter is referred to by a few church fathers, and that's why we think it probably dates anywhere from 160 to 190, maybe 200 A.D., something like that. But what we found that we call the Gospel of Peter is anonymous. There is no name. It has no title. It's not even complete. It was found as part of a book in a coffin of a monk who died in the ninth century A.D., 
So it's possible it isn't even the Gospel of Peter at all. It could be a very late document, a document that reaches into the 3rd, maybe even into the 4th century. And yet, with great confidence, John Dominic Crossan and some others think they can extract real early material from this document, as all the way back to the 40s or 50s of the 1st century. The account of the passion on which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are based. I mean, good grief, wake me up. This is such thin ice, it's ice I would never want to skate on. The other one that's extraordinary is secret, the so-called secret gospel of Mark that's uh, quoted you know, in a letter, an unknown letter by Clement of Alexandria. Morton Smith says he found it in the back of an old book at the Marsaba Monastery in the Judean Desert. And now, thanks to handwriting analysis and many other things that have been undertaken, it turns out it's Morton Smith, very likely, is the one who wrote it. Uh, it's a uh, modern hoax. And yet scholars make uh, bold claims about uh, how we now can understand better the way the Gospels developed, thanks to secret Mark. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, I mean, it's, strange scholarship. It's a strange period of time we're in right now, where scholars who used to be hypercritical now are almost, you could say, gullible. So do these Gnostic Gospels uh, teach us anything about historical Christianity or anything about the historical Jesus? What value do they have? No, the, the Gnostic Gospels, I'm, I'm convinced there isn't one truly Gnostic Gospel, but I would even throw in the mix uh, Gospel of Peter as well and the Gospel of Thomas, which is probably only semi-Gnostic uh, at best. I would say these writings do not uh, give us access uh, you know, in a direct way or a way that's independent of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These Gospels do not give us access to the historical Jesus. Now, they are valuable, and they should be studied. They do show us how traditions get shaped, interpreted, applied. Uh, these writings do tell us things about the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and so on. So they're very valuable for early church history. So I'm not saying that these writings should be ignored or not studied, not at all. But uh, to press details out of these uh, writings that will cause us to change our views of the historical Jesus. That's the part I find uh, just, I'm sorry, I'm not persuaded. The evidence uh, goes against that. Now, speaking of non-Christian historical works, not only are there the Gnostic Gospels, but there are non-Christian Jewish and Roman historical works, such as Pliny and Josephus and others. And in your chapter, you highlight the dubious uses of Josephus. Now, that's a work that many in apologetics and Christian history refer to. Tell us about this chapter. Why did you have to include this chapter on Josephus? Well, oh, I had to. Number one, Josephus is a great, just a great historical source, and so I, I'm just thrilled that Josephus wrote his writings and that uh, Christian scribes uh, in antiquity had the good sense to preserve it. And, of course, that took a lot of ink, a lot of paper to keep his writings floating around. And I'm very, very glad, you know, that they did. Because Josephus tells us about Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, tells us all kinds of history, tells us about Herod the Great and his sons, and actually says a little bit about Jesus, a little bit about his brother James, tells us some important stuff about John the Baptist as well. So he's a valuable source. Tells us about Caiaphas, his father-in-law Annas, both high priests. He tells us about Pontius Pilate. 
this is invaluable material and helps us understand so much better the world of Jesus, uh, the world of the early church, the Gospels, the New Testament, and so forth. But what I object to is that whenever Josephus and the Gospels don't seem to be telling the story quite the same way, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Well, you take Josephus over the Gospel writers every time. And I'd like to know why that is. Josephus uh, writes with an axe to grind. He has, a, he has an agenda. Uh, he is especially nasty with Pilate. And so to suggest that the Gospel portrait of Pilate wavering and somewhat uncertain as to what to do with Jesus and, and then the portrait that you get in uh, Josephus, where Pilate appears to be rather brutal and more than happy to kill people, which, by the way, I think is a, uh, an excessive reading of Josephus anyway. Well, this idea that, well, Josephus gives us the truth and the Gospels don't, I find, I find that really awkward. I find that very strange, because um, I find the multiple witness of the Gospels far more reliable and trustworthy at that point than the single, very tendentious, very biased witness of Josephus. And so that chapter explores that. It says, look, Josephus helps us understand things, but sometimes he's misdirecting us a little bit, and you need to know that. Now, some skeptics will say, well, Josephus mentions more about John the Baptist than Jesus. Why is that? How would you respond to something like that? Well, it's be well you have to look at the context. Uh, John the Baptist's death is directly linked to a catastrophe that overtook Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. And uh, without getting into all the details, John the Baptist picked the wrong time to criticize Herod Antipas and criticize him for divorcing his first wife in order to marry his sister-in-law. And uh, what happened was this wife that uh, Herod had divorced is none other than the, a princess, the daughter of the king of uh, King Eratas next door, the king of Nabatea. And so what, what he did was he sparked an international crisis that resulted in Galilee being invaded, and the Romans had to rescue him because Herod's own army was destroyed. Now that's the historical backdrop, and so Josephus reports that people were saying, well, you know, Herod had it coming, and it's because he executed John the Baptist. And we thought that John the Baptist was a great guy. He was a wonderful person. He was proclaiming repentance. And, uh, you know, people had to get right with God and had to live moral, upright lives. And so, and of course, that meant he criticized Herod for setting a bad example with his divorce and remarriage. And so uh, that's cited by Josephus in great detail because it, it explained what happened to Herod and why his army was destroyed. And of course, this ultimately leads to Herod being removed from his throne by Rome. So it's not hard at all to see why uh, Josephus gives us many, many paragraphs talking about John the Baptist, whereas he only gives one paragraph and a tampered, tampered with paragraph at that concerning Jesus. Because, you know, there wasn't a catastrophe. Jesus died, and that was that. I'm surprised, actually. The only reason that uh, Josephus mentions Jesus is because he finds it necessary to explain uh, who these Christians are. He does refer to James. Why does he refer to James? It's because 
the, the high priest, Annas, who threw him out, uh, who's probably a son of Annas Sr., who's mentioned in the Gospels, uh, he is removed from office. Well, why? Well, because he killed James, and he, and he did so without Rome's authority. So those are the reasons anybody's even mentioned at all, and I'm, I'm glad Josephus did mention those characters, because uh, it's very helpful. Now, there are other Roman historical works, such as Pliny and Tacitus and others. Are those uh, worthy of consideration as we study the historical reliability of the Gospels? Oh, of course. You always want to look at they're not going to help us much with the question specifically of the reliability of the Gospels, but as to the existence of Jesus, of course, that, that kind of a basic question like that. Uh, Suetonius knows of Jesus. Tacitus knows of Jesus. The, the only problem with Tacitus is the major portion of his work, his histories, that, re, that relates to this period of time. That's lost. And so all we have is this brief summary where he refers to who these Christians are. Well, they got their name from somebody named Christ, who was put to death under the order of the governor, Pontius Pilate. But, but his uh, much fuller treatment is lost, which is really too bad. Pliny gives us some important information, too. He's the governor of Bethunia, and, and so he writes a letter to Trajan, probably in the year, you know, 112, something like that. And, uh, dear Emperor Trajan, I, I'm interrogating these Christians, and and it, I, think, I think what they're doing is basically harmless. I just give them a good beating and tell them to knock it off. But otherwise, I don't think they're really a problem. So he just in passing, he talks about who the Christians are. A Lucian in the middle of the second century refers to these Christians who worship the guy that got crucified. That's how he mentions it. And so there is some useful information, but it doesn't give us a great deal of detail. Suetonius, some people say he's mentioning somebody else there, the spelling of Christus with an E rather than Christus. Yeah, and you know, that's possible. Christus, spelled C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Of course, it's a Latin form, but uh, the thing is, Christian was, even in New Testament manuscripts, sometimes Christian is spelled with an E instead of an I. Wow. So it's, it's not a certainty, and so I think, I'm not sure, I can't say most, but I know many think that Suetonius really is referring to Christ, but he's, he's very fuzzy. He's not real sure exactly when Jesus lived. In fact, the way he tells it, you almost think that he thinks Jesus was in Rome at one time. Yeah, so he may have gotten some bad information, but he was aware, at least of the historical person. See, what probably happened, my guess is this, He's, he's writing uh, in the early 2nd century, and, uh, he's, and of course he wants to explain to his readers who are these Christians anyway. Well, get, they get their name from this guy named Christus, and, uh, and of course he remembers from his sources that Christians and Jews were, were caught up in turmoil in Rome, and under Emperor Claudius got thrown out of Rome sometime back in the 40s, so I, I guess it had to do with this guy Christ, and so in Suetonius's mind, maybe Christ was actually in Rome agitating. He's not real sure. He just knows people called Christians, named after Christ, were involved in some kind of upheaval in the 40s in Rome, or somewhere back then, whatever, and uh, anyway, that's where they got their name, and so that's what he's saying, and uh, he's, a little, he's obviously a little shaky on his chronology. You know, one of the criticisms I hear about the Gospels is that, well, the first Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, is many believe to have been written about 60 A.D. That's about 30 years after the life of Christ. There's a 30-year gap there from the resurrection of Christ to when the Gospels are written. 
couldn't have a lot of false information crept in and exaggeration in that 30-year gap? I doubt it. And the other thing you have to remember, too, is that it's the information is community. And so you have 100-plus pretty loyal disciples at the very beginning, following Easter, at the very beginning of the church. And, 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 you know, a lot of living people, a lot of the people who are converted very early on in the church's history, they, they knew what Jesus had taught. They had actually seen him. They had heard him. And Jesus didn't just tell a parable once and never speak it again or, or give, a, give a certain teaching once and never repeat it. And so, you know, in fact, the earliest rabbis were called the Tanaim, the repeaters. And that's because they taught their stuff over and over and over again. It was supposed to be heard, memorized, understood, acted upon, and it was always being repeated. So it doesn't surprise me that you have this core of Jesus' teaching and a solid core of, of, of events in his life, including the whole week, the last week of his life, in a pretty firmly fixed community mem- memory. And so it's not likely that in that first 30 years, when you have hundreds of people, dozens at the core, who heard Jesus and knew what he taught, knew what had happened, and they're repeating it and teaching it to other people as the church grows, it's not likely somebody at, at the end of that 30-year period of time is going to write a real corker that gets it all wrong. Uh, if somebody had written a gospel in the 60s, and it was just making up stuff right and left, events that never occurred, sayings that were never spoken. Nobody, no, nobody would have bothered with it. Nobody would have copied it. It wouldn't have been read by anybody. It had gathered dust. It had rotted away. It had been lost. But Mark said it well, said it so well that other people made use of it. And Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels with reference to Mark, with Mark right in front of them, because they knew it was well done. Even Luke, who says he consulted with eyewitnesses and uh, clearly has access to other materials, still makes heavy use of Mark. Uh, That's a real endorsement. You might even say Matthew's use of Mark is an apostolic endorsement. I've got pretty good endorsements with fabricating Jesus, but not one of them's an apostle. And, you know, that's that's a very important thing. You know, another criticism that I often hear is that we don't really know who wrote the Gospels. I mean, these letters did not have the names on it when they were first written. They were later added by Christian tradition. How do you respond to that? I think that's a very good sign. And uh, second century church fathers were very perceptive at that point. They recognized that the earliest Gospels, they were written so early that everybody knew who they were, who the authors were. And the real focus, of course, was on the content, the stories about Jesus and what he taught and what happened to him. That's the really important thing. And everybody knew that these early Gospels got it right and uh, were very accurate and very faithful in what they were reporting. It's the fictitious works that you might say wear uh, an author's name on their sleeve. It's the fictitious work produced in the second century or third century that wants to claim to be written by an apostle. And so a fictitious work comes along and says, well, it's actually the secret teaching uh, that uh, Thomas wrote down. Now, you see that? When they say secret, that's the alibi. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's an alibi. Because uh, 
if uh, some Christian in the second century gets a hold of the Gospel of Thomas and he goes, good grief, I don't ever remember Jesus teaching that. Look at this. This thing is really weird. And, and this saying and that saying, why none of that? This is really odd. Well, the alibi says, well, that's secret teaching, you see. It's oh. not public teaching. Of oh. course you haven't heard it. See, And so it's an alibi. And so Jesus uh, gives his secret teachings to Philip or to Mary Magdalene, or to somebody else, lesser-known figures, and it's private teaching. And it becomes a, a cover, then, for how it is that the rest of the Church has never heard this stuff. How come it doesn't reach back to the first century? Why it isn't in the first century Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because it was secret. That's what's going on there. Well, Dr. Evans, you know, this has been a fascinating interview, and we encourage everyone to go to evidenceandanswers.org to listen to the full interview if you didn't get a chance, and especially to read his book, Fabricating Jesus. Now, I guess as you're looking down the road, Dr. Evans, what do you see of these arguments and uh, continual revisionist writings of Jesus? Do you expect them to continue, and how should we as Christians prepare for what's coming down the road? Well, I think it's going to go on. I wish I could say that, uh, you know, it's going to peter out and, and disappear. It isn't going to happen. I think, I think we're going to get more goofy books, whether it's from Dan Brown, Michael Bajan, or somebody else, I don't know. But I think we're going to get more extreme uh, scholarship. We're going to get more pseudo-scholarship. I think we have no other choice, but uh, <clears throat> I think uh, Christians just need to be active. And, uh, and need to advocate uh, critical thinking, knowing church history, knowing the contents of Scripture better. Uh, I, think, I think we scholars uh, who have tended to ignore stupid stuff in the past, we need to stop ignoring it, and we need to take time out of our very esoteric studies, take time out from time to time, and write popular-level books that speak directly to these questions. And uh, I think that's what we have to do. As long as the nonsense is getting published, we, gotta, we have to deal with it. And by the way, that's been the history of the Church for 2,000 years, so it's not like a new problem in a way. It's been with us for a long, long time. One more question, Dr. Evans. Uh, you have a quick section in your book about absence of evidence is not a problem. What do we mean by that? <laughs> well, Sometimes, of course, people uh, they have no evidence for whatever they're doing, and, uh, they, and they read between the lines. They say the Gospels are in code. Uh, uh, Barbara Thiering of uh, Australia does that. And so you can start unpacking uh, wild ideas, even though there actually isn't any evidence. And Michael Bajant does that to some extent. So does Dan Brown. I mean, there is no priory of science and these secret documents and all that, that's all a hoax. And so that's what I'm talking about, you know. So, so what I, I'm being sarcastic, of course. I'm saying to, to the public, beware these guys and their theories, because you don't even have to have evidence misinterpreted. You can just have no evidence at all and still come up with a kooky theory. Our guest has been Dr. Craig Evans and the book that you're going to want to get. It's a great book, easy to understand, yet it's filled with great information that's just handy to learn as you're dialoguing with Christians and critics of the Gospels. The book is Fabricating Jesus. And Dr. Evans, thanks for being with us these past two weeks. 
Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.